grateful and thankful for um, the work you do in the lives of people, the work you do in changing hearts. We're thankful for your preservation of your word, um, the revelation that we have, that special revelation that teaches us about you, teaches us about our history of really man and just teaches about ourselves. Lord, I pray you'd help us um, to find real excitement um, in learning to use these tools as we read our Bibles with a greater degree of care than we would do in typical casual reading that would spark us to um, be excited about the truths that we can see more clearly um, to a degree when we just slow down and look more precisely at what you've written. Uh, Lord, help us to learn these tools so that we can be faithful uh, as we try to understand your word to help keep us from uh, really drawing wrong conclusions from Scripture. Um, if we if we learn these tools, it will help us. I would just thank you for getting everybody here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, if, uh, if you missed last week... Um, I'm going to say you can get the notes. I, I gave the notes late to Lacey today, so if they're not, they'll get posted. If you're watching live stream, if you missed the class last week, the class exactly reflects the information in the book, but we go through one example per observation in the class. So if you have the class notes, you could read through the book and answer the questions from the actual class teaching. Now, last week we ran out of time and we didn't get to cover the discourse section and the observations on discourses. And there's only five of those, uh, and I have them up here on the board. And I'm not going to go over them so deeply as we did before, but um, because you guys have done the homework for the Chapter 5, Assignment 3, if you've done that, you've gone through and you've done observations of that page, so we're just going to go in and, and try to do an application of this and the application of the observations we've learned and apply it to that 5-3 assignment. Uh, So the new observations we have are connections between paragraphs and episodes. How does the passage connect to the one that precedes it and the one that follows it? That's exactly one of the ones we're going to look at today. There's actually three episodes they're actually in a series. Um, I think they all happen in less than, well, well just a little over 24 hours, right? Uh, the story shifts, major breaks, and pivots. Is the passage being used as a key to understand a dramatic shift in the story? Um, I think we're more in connections between paragraphs than, than shifts in story. And interchange, does the passage shift back and forth between the scenes of characters. I don't think we have an interchange in this one. But we do have, essentially, they're sort of like three scenes, but they're not going back and forth between them, right? So we really just have three specific passages, three specific things that happen. And our goal is to try to see how they're connected. And because they're connected, we see the purpose for which each of those sections is written and where they're, where they're taking us and what the, what the, what the teaching is supposed to be. So there's two other observations. We're not real. I'm just going to show you what they are. The chiasm um, and talking to Keith. If you don't read Hebrew and Greek, it's going to be very difficult for you to see the chiasms 
typically often they happen in poetry. But there's an A, B, C, and then um, how did I get a D? And there's a C prime, B prime, and A prime. Forget my D in there. Is okay. The D, the D is the pivot. It turns around at D. Okay. So um, we're not actually going to do an example of those. The examples in the book are really pretty clear. So because last week we said go read chapter five and do the homework from chapter five, I'm not going to go through these in detail because I'm going to presume right you've read those, and I'm not going to tell you anything additional than the book says. So, but we're going to go through this one homework, and hopefully we'll look through those tools there. Um, and then the inclusio, uh, typically the first passage and the, the first verse and the last verse in that passage section is going to be basically saying the same thing. Um, so an inclusio is just a, there's similar statements at the front end and the back end, and that whole event is referred to as an inclusio, right? Um, and because the the passage or the verse, the first and the end are related, that whole section is tied to one concept generally. So that's as much as we're going to do for going over those examples. I did them much faster than we did last week. But I want to jump to Drew is go to the other PowerPoint. Um, and we're going to actually look at the passage we were asked to review. And we're going to try to. Start going through observations. So I have my sheet where I marked up all my observations, and hopefully you guys have your sheets where you try to do your observations. And I hope you're seeing how doing those observations starts to lead you to the connections right between the different sections. So, um, so we're going through assignment 5-3. Does everybody know where we are? If you don't have that with you, you can grab, there's some extra copies of 5-3 over there uh, if you don't have it. So our, our task is to read the story from Mark 11. It says photocopy it, but I made copies for you, right? Uh, notice that the text has two encounters with a fig tree. Um, and how are you going to find that there's fig trees in, in two places? What observation is going to help you find that, if, other than the lesson just told us? When you do observations for repeated words, right, you're going to see fig tree happening over and over. So you say, okay, where's fig tree fit in here, right, because it's actually a repetitive word. Uh, it's sandwiched around an event in the temple. In addition to making observations, explain how the fig tree relates to the episode in the temple. So I'm, I'm going to tell you there's a couple keys that you look at the passages that tell you why the fig tree at the beginning, the fig tree at the end is related to the temple event, right? So then your question is to get to how does that, how does the fig tree and what's going on with the fig tree relate to what's going on in the temple, okay? So this is the first, um, the first section where it went from 12 to 14. Uh, the next section is longer than I get on one screen, but. What did you, when you guys marked observations, what observations did you get on verse 12 to 14? And you can just feel free to speak up. Raise your hand or just speak up, and I will try to repeat so the people who are listening. What observations did you make? Next day is the transition. Yeah, the, um, 
Right. And we're going to see these transitions a couple of times. Yes. The, the next day keys us to there's a change in what was going on previously. Right. To right now. Excellent. A transition point. Right. What else? Uh, Jesus was hungry. Um, okay. What else? That's good. You could ask why Jesus is hungry, but I'm not sure that's too uh, great theological. <laughs> the commentaries talk about it. <laughs> Go ahead. It's actually reality. It's more than a figure of speech because it's actually describing the fig tree. So Christ, from the distance, sees a fig tree and notices that it's flush with leaves. Right? That's a good sign because... The time frame we think is a probably May, um, April to May, huh? Passover, Passover right? March, April. Okay. Not this specific text, right? But if you're following through the flow, yes. Yeah. So you're right. There's nothing in this passage that tells us when it is. So, you know, and hopefully, you know, when you start doing observations, that's what leads you to start asking more questions, right? That causes you to dig deeper. Okay. So I even did a search on, oh, I just, I just did a Google search on fig trees, right? To understand how does fig trees, fruit, whatever it does, right? Okay. And I'll explain that. And I will explain why that is, right? And um, it, I have to I'll have to say I went to a commentary and got it, but then I went to the Internet and read about fig trees, and that also helped me understand about it, all right? So uh, I'm, not, I'm not a fig tree expert, but uh, anyway. So what else do we get for observations? Somebody else besides Roger, we talked fig tree. What else do we see? Who's they? In the first sentence, the next day as they, disciples and Jesus, yep. Um, who is the he? Jesus. Um, yes, yeah, so there's actually a dialogue. It may be a one-way dialogue, but Jesus is dialoguing and actually talking to the tree. There's, it seems like all the dialogues in here are rather one-sided so each section has a dialogue, but there's only one person ever talking. And, and the book talks about emotion and tone of the yes. So obviously Jesus was expecting work for fruit, did not find it, and he was upset, but he was not happy about that. Yeah, so 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 Dave's pointing down here. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Um, and that's a question what we can read into the text. I actually read some different commentaries. So am I cheating? Because as you get questions, as you get questions, right, what is that going to drive you to? I'm going to look for more information, right? Yes. Jesus knew that the tree was not going to have fruit. So I, man, I read a commentary about that. So the commentary said Christ certainly as God had the ability to know what was on that tree or not on that tree before he got there. But as the Christ man who wasn't 
employing all of his attributes as God, right, was actually expecting there to be fruit on the tree. And he went there because he was hungry. It tells us why he went there, right? The tree was, he was hungry, right? That's why he went to the tree and he pursued the tree. Why did he pursue that tree? Because it was full of leaves. Okay, I'm going to try to stick to observations before I break into my... Do we have any more observations in this section? Figs and fig tree and fruit, right? Uh huh. Right. So it's important that he was talking to the fig tree, <laughs> but the disciples heard what was going on because it's gonna. The fact that it's that it was heard is reflected in the third passage, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my, I, that's all great, isn't it? Is it fun to start asking questions about why these things say they are? So I cheat. I don't know that I cheat. I went to commentaries, right? And I looked at commentaries because I wanted to understand a little bit more. Because the question, just as it stumped Ro, uh, Roger, well, it's the figs are not in season. What does that mean? If it's April to May, right, the fruit should have set. Right? It's sometime after Passover. The fruit should have set, and there should have been fruit growing in that tree, not ripe, because it doesn't get ripe until June in Israel. Okay? So when he went to the tree, there should have been fruit on it. Not fruit that was ripe, but fruit that he could actually eat. So the fig at that point is still edible. But it's like eating, you know, you could go to my son's peach orchard and you could eat one of those peaches before they're ripe. They're not anywhere near as sweet and they're a little more bite. It's a little more crispy bite when you bite into them and they're not anywhere near as tasty, right? But you could eat them, right? And they would nourish you. So the fruit, when it's not in season, as I looked at the commentaries, they're really saying, and if you understand when this is, so we've got a Look at a bigger context. So the, I, that's why I love to cheat and look what the commentators say in the commentaries because they've looked at all that. They know when this is. They know the time frame that this is happening from the whole passage that's going on through the books as it's been going through. So we just parachuted in right in the middle of this. Because the tree is full of leaves, that's a very positive sign that that tree is, tree is very healthy and it's growing strong. And if it's the time frame, there should have been set fruit on that tree. The only reason there would not be, according to Google, is it was a very young tree, right? So the tree is well nourished. It's got lots of leaves. And by all rights, there should have been fruit on it, right? So the expectation Christ had when he got to the tree, there should have been something to eat, and there wasn't. So is it a command... Uh, you know, what do we say typically? I don't know that I think of as May as a, I guess you could say, I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to say May is imperative. <laughs> I'm leaning on my David Gibson help. Uh, I think May no one ever, is that, a, is that imperative? I think not, but it doesn't sound very bossy to me. Yeah, well, I could go to Greek, but it is, it does begin the sentence, so it, it could be an imperative, right? Because it's in the right place. Yes. So, where'd you read that? 
Is, is it in the, in the passage you read or in the comments? In the comments? So, and we're going to see later that Peter says he cursed the tree, right? Um, so if you think about it, it's a fruit tree. What are fruit trees to do? Bear fruit. And what did just Jesus say? May you never bear fruit again, right? You don't have fruit. May you never bear fruit. And right, right. He's, he's commanding, he's, he's commanding that this, right. As a curse, this tree will never bear fruit again. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of, that's all we've got right now, right? All by itself, right? We need to get to the other fig tree and this next passage and then answer the question at the end, how are they related? Any other observations we got in this section? They were leaving Bethany, right? So you could, you could actually get some information how far is Bethany from Jerusalem? How long is that walk? Yeah, two miles. So how long does it take to route two miles? A little over half an hour, 45 minutes, something like that, depending on how fast you walk. Is, is there a word for, like, this progression? Mm-hmm. You know, they left Bethany, they go into Jerusalem, you've got the temple, and they come back through, those kinds of terms. Well, it, it's, it's, I think it's, we're, we're breaking into separate events. So there's separate distinct passages which are related. And what's the, what's the name in the, I'd have to go to the other, the other PowerPoint to get it, right? So, or you could pull out your handy little uh, sheet right here. Sorry. It's okay. Thanks, Glenn. So, what what might you want to use this? What might you want to use this for? Um, and in here, there's a summary of all the observations from chapter three and chapter five. So, uh, it's not a dialogue. So, what are we saying? There's connections to other paragraphs and episodes. I don't think it's so much shift in the story, the story pivots, right? You could, it's either shifts or connections to other paragraphs is the observation that we're looking at here. Well, there is only from the standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, there, I don't think there's too much significance except he's just within an hour's walk of Jerusalem from Bethany to get into the temple and he goes to the temple pretty soon as he gets there and then he heads back. We don't get from this passage but from others. To, he ends up going back to Bethany. So, yes, here. Thanks, Drew. He put the PowerPoint back up for me. So um, there's connections between paragraphs and episodes. I'm going to say that the connections works better here because the figs, the fig and fig tree kind of gives us a connection from one section to the other, rather than story shifts, um, major breaks and pivots in the story. In uh, this passage being used as a key to understand this dramatic shift in the story. I don't know, It's a, a, I see it as a dramatic shift as the passages are all connected to each other, right? It's connections that are going to make give us the, the meaning here. So if one of my two... Uh, Yeah, so let's jump back to the, Drew, to the, uh, so, thank you. So I'm going to say we're pretty close to exhausted. There's actually two sections. We're going to go from 15 
to 18. What are the observations you guys have in this section? So we move to a new section. How do we know we're in a new section? Got one of those transition phrases after reaching Jerusalem. So there's a change in the time. They've been walking and now they're in Jerusalem. And now, so I'm describing something new. So somewhere between Bethany and Jerusalem is a fig tree. (laughs) And there's probably more than one. But there's one that has lots of leaves. Okay. What are your observations? Jesus entering the temple. So temple is a word that appears several times in here, right? So temple temple's a repeated word. What else do you have? There's lists. What makes up a list? Two or more things, right? How many how many there's typically lists of two, but I'm gonna say there's actually a a third, right? So what are the what are the lists? There's uh-huh. Uh, I, I at least said the tables and benches and what he does to the tables and benches and then what he does to the money changers, sellers, and anyone carrying anything in the temple. Right? Right. Say it again. Yes, they're selling of merchandise. Uh, there's exchange of money. And the people who are carrying merchandise are supporting the, the enterprises that are going on. So the fact that they're carrying merchandise, he's dealing with those people too because they're part of the problem. So what does he do to the tables? Turns tables over. What does he do to the benches? Kicks the benches over. So the, um, and he doesn't actually do anything to the, to the carriers, but he does stop them from carrying. Yes, what else do you see? Pronoun, who's the pronoun? He. He overturned the tables, that's Christ. Which one? Well, I, he's, I think if he's sending the people out of the space, right? Yeah. So I don't know if I'd call driving out a figure of speech because I think he's actually sending them out. Get out of here. We don't want you in here. What you're doing is not appropriate to be done in the temple. I'm turning over your tables. I'm kicking over your benches. And I'm not letting you carry anything. So I, there's probably an... Did, did somebody see a, pa- a passage where it says he's driving them out? Yeah. Okay, there you go. That's good to note tense of the verb. That's excellent. I like all the stuff you're saying. You're, you're seeing all the actions Christ is doing in the temple, right? So they've corrupted, they've turned the temple into a den of robbers. <laughs> 
So there's something implied about what they're doing in the process of selling and exchanging money that's actually robbing. Yeah. But he has to tell us that, right? So there's dialogue there, right? Well, if they're... I think I think both, but there is there is there is sacrifice that God that God calls for. So they're selling they're selling the animals for the sacrifices, but they've they've turned uh, they've turned it into a, maybe this um, exceedingly profitable venture. It's corrupt operation. Right. And what should the temple be used for? For prayer and worship. Now, worship doesn't appear in the text, but prayer does, right? So I think prayer is a part of worship. So I'm going to say prayer and worship is what the purpose of the temple is. And they've turned it into a a financial enterprise, right? So well, a den of robbers, right? That's what Christ calls them. Yeah, and probably if they're carrying stuff in the building, that's probably another Sabbath violation. Well, the reason I bring that up is because if you go to Nehemiah, we had the same issue, people selling things, and they were on Sabbath, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing in this text that tells us an activity is going on that would be a Sabbath. And as Dave says, there's actually indications that it wouldn't be a Sabbath. Because the Pharisees are the people who are in charge and they may be doing something, but you, you would think that they would at least be observing the Sabbath rules, right? It's a good question though, right? Those are good questions to ask. All these are great questions you're asking, right? And if you can't get the answer, I would go to, I, you know, I, like I say, I'm the cheater. I go to the commentaries and I start reading them to try to understand. I know, I know. It's the, yeah, right. That's maybe so. <laughs> I haven't given you that. We haven't given you that, that tool yet. So he asks. There's actually a question. There's a question mark in here. So Jesus asks a question, but I think it's a rhetorical question, right? And how do we know there's a question? Because there's a question mark. It really helps a lot. So the question is: Is it not written? That's the question. And then the statement: My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And if you look at that, say that's what my that's what my temple's called to be. What's going on there is not a house of prayer. It's become something different, to the point that he calls a a dinner robber. So, is there some emotion? Where do you see emotion? Yeah, when he calls it, but you have made it a dinner robbers. My guess is that's a uh, that's an. Uh, an emotional state. So there's lots of conjunctions here. There's some buts. There's some becauses we've seen. I've maybe run over those quickly. Yes. So, yes. So in this sentence right here, 
It should be... Where's the you I'm looking for? You have made right. Who is this you? And, I, and I'm almost half an hour in, so i got to come to an end here pretty quick because Keith's got to start teaching. I, I think all the yous are the people he's addressing. And if you go to another passage, it talks about there's a crowd. There's a crowd that hears him here. So is it in the next? No, it's still here. The whole crowd, right? The whole crowd. I think this whole crowd is implied in the you, right? The crowd was amazed. So when he says you, everybody who's engaged in this practice and this process is the you, right? It could be the Pharisees, but whoever is selling, who's ever money changing, right? Who's ever carrying merchandise in and out to be sold, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, so, and I'll at least, Gray, if we're going to, if we're going to, if we're going to use tools of grammar, we're going to look to the sentence and see who's the sentence say is there. Um, the only, the only question I would have is there's, there's, we know there's priests in there, right? We know there's teachers of the law there because they actually are going to confront Christ, right? So. Uh, but the chief priests and teachers of the law heard this. So it's almost as if it wasn't directed at them, right? And began looking for a way to kill him. Why do they want to kill him? Because, well, they feared him. They feared what he was doing. Why did they fear him? Because the response is, so how do we know? So there's a because, there's a conjunction, right? That's, and there's a four. So the for and the because are key to understanding the kill, right? They wanted to kill him because they feared him, and they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed by his teaching and what he was doing. So he's teaching, and we go look at another book. We know he's actually doing miracles at this time, too. Um, and I'm running out of time, so I'm letting, I'm, letting, I'm letting us all talk too much. Let me see if I can wrap this up quick. Um, when evening came, it's our next transition, right? Um, Jesus and his disciples, you could say that's a list because there's an and, um, uh, they went out of the city in the morning. So these are more time. That's the time and events where they are somewhere now between Jerusalem and Bethany. We actually look at another book to find out they're going to Bethany. It doesn't say this in this text. Um, and the fig tree reappears. <laughs> and what's the observation about the fig tree? How long has it been since? Pretty close to 24 hours, right? Maybe less. Right? And the fig tree is obviously exceedingly, I put that adverb, withered. How long does it take a tree to look like it's withered? Probably even even in Texas, probably more than a day, right? <laughs> so 
So what, when they observe the tree, it's a significant change in the tree. Significant enough to say they're connecting what's happening to the tree, right, to what Jesus said before. So uh, dialogue again. Um, the fig tree is a repeated topic. Okay, so now's the question. We have to answer another question. Explain how the fig tree relates to the episode in the temple. What are you going to say? Um, so I, I don't... I, I don't know that I would I would say that the temple's rotting from the root up, but that's the point. But that what the tree represented itself as, right, was not what it was. So the temple, which should be representing what it is as a place of worship for God, it was not what it represented itself to be. It was something different. So I think that's the comparison, and there's a comparison there. That's one of our observation points. Right between the sections, we have comparisons. So the tree didn't do what it appeared it should have been doing. The temple wasn't doing what the temple should have been doing. Right? And there was a consequence for the tree. The tree was destroyed. So what's the implication for the temple? The temple's going to be destroyed. And it was. And if you keep reading through Mark, you're going to see this whole passage in in the section where Christ actually says there won't be a, a stone un, that's not turned over. Yeah. Yeah, the what you So so what Dave's pointing out that in the context of these three sections there's a context before there's a context after and Christ actually responds to Peter, right? And the topic is almost like there's no component of faith that's been discussed between these three sections, right? So when Jesus answers, he answers with a comment about faith. So, um, Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be care, you know, so Dave is just trying to say, be careful how much you ascribe to what's going on here. Uh, as I looked at the commentaries, a common thing I saw in the commentaries and you saw in the book, uh, he was pointing to the fact that the, the, um, the fig tree didn't represent what it was, nor was the, there was a component of the temple doing the same thing. The fig tree was cursed for what it did. The fig tree was so bookending. I have a I have bookends of the of the fig tree's curse. The fig tree's destroyed, right? And then something in the middle. What's going on in the temple? I still think those three sections are telling us something about the temple, 
right? And a consequence for the temple. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, why, why are the fig trees bookending, right, that section? So I at least have two bookends here. Yes, to complicate trying to grasp where this is going, you've still got to deal with the following passage where Christ re- responds to them. So, But do this. Can you see how looking at the connections and doing the observations is helping us get more out of what's going on here? Right? There's a connection to the temple with the fig tree. We could argue about what it is, right? But we're seeing that there's a connection there. So, yes, I, would I trust myself? I would probably still look at commentaries to help understand that. And, and as Dave says, it's appropriate to go ahead and look at the following passages as well. So hopefully I'm getting you excited about doing observations, that observations lead us to questions. And that's, you know what's exciting when you get questions? You have something you can go talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ about. Right? Man, I was reading this. I was reading this the other day. And maybe you're talking to Keith. <laughs> or Terry, or David, or going to grab a commentary to try to grapple with what's going on. Those are all good things we spurred you on to. So with that, let me stop because I'm 10 minutes over. My bad. So um, I have a confession to make to my brothers and sisters here. Um, It was just a couple of weeks ago that I watched Lord of the Rings for the first time. Yeah. And um, one of the things that was very hard for me watching it for the first time and my children who have seen all of them, or most of them, probably multiple times, was I'm sitting here, and as this very long first episode is going on, I've got hundreds of questions. Who's that? What, what's going on here? And, right? And it was very hard for them, in seeing the whole thing multiple times, to not say, now this is going to happen in episode three, and this is going to happen. And, and, and so it's frustrating for me watching it the first time. It's also frustrating for those that have been through it over and over and over again. And, and I felt like that's a little bit of what was happening a moment ago as we tried to go through this example, because when you're first learning to interpret Scripture, um, you have all these questions. And we want to answer them right away. We, we don't like going, uh Right. What does it mean? What does it represent? And um, I I think like watching your favorite movie for the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time. Every time you watch it, what happens? You start learning more. You start seeing more connections. You start putting things in context. You start noticing all of this. So that's a little bit of what we're feeling right now is you guys are watching episode one. And obviously you've read the Bible before, so you know that. But but that's a little bit of it. So my encouragement is don't get frustrated when you do an assignment like this that there are unanswered questions. That's okay. The point of what we're trying to teach you is to make observations. Notice transitions. Fig tree, temple, fig tree. Okay, that's good. Pay attention to that. Maybe we can make a connection right away. Maybe we can't. But the point is to make that observation to notice those transitions as you read the whole book of mark which is really what we need to do 
and put that one section in context and read it over and over and over again, then you're going to start to see things. And what some of you were doing, because you've read the whole book before, is you're going, oh, this happens over here, and what about this? And that's good. You're seeing those connections. But at this point, we're trying to teach you a method of noticing, of asking questions, of seeing connections, and it's not going to get you to where everything's answered, right? Where we're, it's a process. But just recognize that, that that's how you read books, that's how we watch movies, and reading the Bible at, in that sense is no different. Okay, so learn to make those observations, ask questions, uh, and then know that as you keep reading and keep studying, hopefully we'll be able to answer some of those questions, okay? You with me? Okay. Um, awesome. Well, thank you, Lee, for, for leading us. Uh, that was really insightful just to see those connections there. So uh, where are we on this interpretive journey? Remember, what, we're, what are we trying to do? We're trying to teach you a method of studying the Bible. And uh, we're using this as an analogy just because it kind of helps us to remember the, the number one there. That's the biblical city. That represents the biblical town and and. The journey, right, the journey we're trying to do is to, first of all, grasp the text in their own town. We're trying to understand what did the author mean to the audience he wrote to in biblical times. That's that's step number one. And we're learning that by understanding sentences and looking for key words and discourses and, and whatnot. Um, the next thing we do is we want to measure the width of the river to cross. In other words, what are the differences between the biblical audience and us? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're making all these observations. Um, we don't have a temple in the middle of Granbury. Have you noticed this? We have a courthouse. See, it's different, right? So that would be one difference is we, we don't have people that sell things in the temple. We have things, people that sell things on the square. Right, So there's one difference between our town and, and the biblical town. We're going to study that tonight, and we're going to figure out how do we identify those differences and then educate ourselves to overcome them. Remember, step three is we're going to cross the bridge. Once we understand what the text meant to the author and we understand the differences there, then we can draw meaning from that. What's the point of the story? What's the theological truth that's being taught? Or, or whatever the, the, uh, the point there is. Then we uh, can verify... As a check, right, when we make a conclusion in the Bible, we want to make sure, hey, are we consistent with the rest of the Bible? We don't want to uh, stand on one text alone uh, and, and potentially make an error. And then finally, we want to uh, bring application. That's step five. Okay, so what we're going to do tonight is step two, the differences from history and culture. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about literary differences. Okay, so think of it like this. Historical differences are just that, right? Things that are different from the time in biblical history versus our day-to-day. Cultural differences, 21st century American Granbarian culture versus ancient Near Eastern culture. And then in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the literary differences, meaning we're going to study the types of books in the Bible, whether it's Proverbs or story or uh, a, a letter or apocalyptic literature. And that's going to help us to understand then what are some of these differences that keep us from understanding the meaning so that we can move toward understanding. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, have you noticed that differences can be embarrassing? Um, this is me. Uh, in the middle there, you recognize it. And um, that gentleman standing next to me is my Russian interpreter. This is me teaching a theological class on counseling in Samara, Russia, back in 2014, I think. And that's the class there on the right, uh, the whole class there, graduation picture, and then that was a classroom shot there on the left. And uh, I'd never been to Russia before, 
And uh, so I went in and I'm doing my thing and working through the interpreter. And at one point I said something <clears throat> that I thought would, would be appropriate um, to, or, or maybe a student answered a question and I thought it would be great to give a standing ovation and applaud. So I just started applauding and the interpreter turned and looked at me and he didn't say a word. And the class all stood like this, looking at me like, like I had said something profane. And I just froze. And finally, the interpreter said, um, it is disrespectful to clap in church. Well, I didn't know that. I'd never been to Russia before. I'm thinking, you know, we, we Americans applaud. We applaud in church. You know, Pastor Terry hits it out of the park. We applaud a point, right? We, the worship team does a great job. We applaud. We did that the other day, right? Um, I didn't know that. It was a cultural difference, right? And cultural differences can be embarrassing. I just got back from two weeks in the UK. I did all sorts of things that were offensive to the family I stayed with, not knowing. <clears throat> so the, the point is, differences can really get us into trouble in, in life. And that was a mild embarrassment. They were very gracious. You know, the dumb American didn't know any better. So, and we moved on. But what if you're trying to rightly divide the word of truth? And there's some cultural difference in the Bible that you or I don't understand, right? Well, then we get the, the Bible wrong. We don't want to do that. that that's, even, that's way more serious, way more embarrassing than, than my little blunder, okay? So that's why this is so important. So let's talk about the historical cultural context. What we're thinking about in terms of historical cultural context is any information available from outside of the text of Scripture that helps us to understand the biblical text itself. Sometimes we talk about internal evidence and external evidence. Okay, Internal evidence or, or internal information would be things I can learn about the book itself from inside the book. So, for example, if Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, well, I didn't need to go read that somewhere in an in a encyclopedia on the Apostle Paul, the Bible itself tells me he's an apostle. But if Paul says uh, something about being in arrest in Rome, he's in chains, well, we go, what does that mean? I mean is that like going to Wichita Falls? Uh, is that like being in the Hood County Jail? Is that like being in a Russian prison in, in the 1800s? I mean, what, what does it mean, right? And, and at that point, we rely on external sources to help us to understand what that was like. And sometimes th that external historical information is necessary to understand what the author means. Why is that? Because when Paul wrote to the Ephesians about being under house arrest, everybody in, in Ephesus presumably knew what that meant. They were familiar with that form of incarceration. Well, we're not familiar with that because we don't do it like that necessarily today. So we're looking at information that's available from outside the text that helps us. We get that from archaeology. We get that from other literary works that were written, historical works that were written at that time. There's all sorts of sources that we can pull from to, uh, to try to get information from outside of the text that helps us to understand the text itself. So here's some examples. Let's think about this. In Jonah, we're introduced to the Ninevites. You're like, what's that? Is that contagious? Right? Is that, uh, uh, who, who are the Ninevites? What's that? Well, presumably they're from Nineveh. Well, where's that? Well, how do you know that? You looked at a map. See, he cheated, right? He cheated. No, just kidding. You see, that, that's what you're supposed to do. If we have a map that tells us where Nineveh is, in the Assyrian Empire, and then you go, 
Well, where's the Assyrian Empire? We don't have an Assyrian Empire today. Right? So, so you see, so, so knowing something of the background, you know, Jonah, if you read Jonah, Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites. Like, he really doesn't like the Ninevites. Like, he gets angry at God for showing mercy to the Ninevites. We go, what did these people do that was so horrible that Jonah would not like them? Well, then you read some history about the Ninevites. And you go, okay, these people were horrendous in their torture of their enemies. And in the people that they took over when they killed them and stole all their land, right? Well, that's going to help you to know something of, well, why was Jonah so upset at these guys, right? What about this? What did the Pharisees believe about the Sabbath? What, what do you know about the, the Pharisees and the Sabbath? What did they do? What's that? Okay. They had rules about what you could and couldn't do. Uh, do we find those in the Bible? There's a few rules in the Bible in the Old Testament about the Sabbath day. Absolutely there is there. What did the Pharisees do that made their view of the Sabbath different from the biblical view? Yeah, Noah? They added rules. So some of the things that get the Pharisees all wound up about Jesus when he's doing things on the Sabbath day are not because they're breaking the Old Testament Sabbath law, but because they're breaking their own tradition, their own addition to the Sabbath day. And, and that helps us to understand some of those encounters about why Jesus and the, and the Pharisees get into it. Uh, we mentioned the one, what, what is house arrest, right? What, what does that mean? How about this? I had to put this one in just for David Gibson. Why did Boaz have to seek permission from a relative before redeeming the land in Ruth? Okay, how'd you know that? Okay, you read the textbook. Okay, all right, yeah, yeah. How'd the textbook authors know that? Okay, okay. Okay, yeah. So what you're saying is there's some internal evidence that helps us to understand that. And, and, and by maybe reading between the lines and putting that together, we can kind of say, okay, so there must have been this law that the closest relative had the first option, really first responsibility, right? And so it was, it was appropriate for Boaz to go find that other relative. And who does he take with him when he goes to talk? Do you remember? Ten elders, if I remember right, I think. Because he needed an essentially uh, what was like the, the, the way decisions were made in towns with the elders, right? He needed that sort of legal oversight to make sure that what he was doing was going to be legitimate in terms of the law. But we can go and read about <clears throat> um, uh, the customs of the day and, and learn more about how all that worked, okay? So again, th- those are examples of where knowing a little bit of history, uh, some from the Bible itself and, and oftentimes from extra-biblical sources, we, we can gain information about that. Um, now, we can make mistakes regarding the interpretation of biblical passages if we fail to understand the historical and cultural background. Um, okay, and we'll, we'll do some examples here in a minute. Now, there are some dangers in background studies. Um, Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew 19, please. 
I remember early on as a child hearing a sermon about this, and I don't remember where it was or who said it, uh, but in Matthew chapter 19, uh, the rich young ruler, right? Matthew chapter 19, the, the, the incident, the rich young ruler, and uh, you know the story, he comes up, you know, what good thing should I do to inherit eternal life, right? We get through the whole thing, and, and remember, he, he goes away sad because he's unwilling to go sell all his possessions to follow Jesus. And um, verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel, big animal, long neck, what? Big, yeah, they spit sometimes, um, to go through the eye of a needle. Okay, now how many have heard the sermon that the eye of the needle was an entrance to the city and in order for the camels to get in, they had to kind of take all their baggage off and crawl under the thing, okay? I don't know where that came from, but did you know that that's myth? Right. Um, I don't know, but, but, but here, here's the thing, that, that's where external study, external sources, in this case that are wrong, and get propagated because it makes sense to us, right? It's a great image, right? You have to strip off everything to follow Jesus. Deny yourself. It fits theologically, doesn't it? It's just not true. <laughs> so, well, okay. So, so Dave's getting ahead of me, but anyway. So, uh, I love it when you get ahead of me, Dave. It's awesome. So, but but check this out. The text itself shows us that that interpretation is wrong. Okay, look at this because. When the disciples heard what Jesus said, verse 25, what did they say? When the disciples heard this, they were very very astonished and said, well, what does the camel do with all the stuff he leaves outside the city? Is that what it says? No, they said, when they heard this, then who can be saved? The disciples understood that what Jesus meant was it was impossible for a rich man to be saved. Not that there was some like, Dawning of baggage. So see, the, the text itself interprets what Jesus meant. And that's, that's one of our takeaways, right? Let, let the context, let the story itself interpret what's going on. And in this case, how the hearers to Jesus responded give us a clue about how we're supposed to take what he meant, what, right? What he said. And then, of course, what does Jesus say? Jesus affirms their reaction. You're right. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Meaning it takes God himself doing a miracle of sorts to allow people to, to be saved. Okay, so, so we need to be careful of background studies because sometimes information you hear can be wrong. Uh, sometimes we can elevate background information of the text above the meaning of the text. And I think that's what happens here. Not only is he wrong that view wrong, but we've made that the interpretive key to the text and letting the text itself lead us to what it means. So we don't want to do that. And we don't want to walk around as, as ancient Near Eastern scholars. Better to be a student of the Bible's message. Let's be an expert in, in knowing and obeying the Bible. And, and let's not uh, get off too much on, on being ancient Near Eastern experts, okay? So um, let, let's, uh, let's talk about what is the actual information that we need. And then we're going to do an example. And 
uh, I, I asked you this week one and you told me no, but you guys aren't too old for show and tell, right? No. Okay, I got show and tell here. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Okay, so, so what is the historical cultural information that you're going to need to know about any book in the Bible? And, and there may be like extra things in addition to these, but these are sort of the keys, okay? And on your notes there, no surprise here, right? Who was the author of the book? What was his background? What, uh, when did he write? Um, what was the nature of his ministry? What kind of relationship did he have with the audience? Why was he writing? Who was the biblical audience? And what were their circumstances? Okay, so any book you read, if you're going through a Bible reading plan and you're going to dive into a new book, these are some great questions to try to understand before you jump into that. Not, not that you, there's nothing wrong with jumping in and starting reading it and not know all of this because you can, you can learn the answers to a lot of these things simply by reading the book. But there's also a lot of information that you're probably going to get, you're going to get lost in the book if you don't know certain information about the book ahead of time. Okay, so those are some key things there. Now, interestingly enough, um, we might say, well, um, <laughs> that's the information we need, but we have, to, we have to talk about one more thing. And just remember, don't forget that you have a history culture too. We're talking about what did Paul mean? Where did Paul live? What was Paul's background? Who was he writing to? Where was he when he wrote? Why did he write? What right? We're, we're focused on what, what, what is the, the book, the background of the book itself. But we need to stop and remember that we, as the reader, have a history too, right? We have a culture too. The, the, there's something that we just need to really be honest about, and that is the readers of the Bible are not neutral. We don't come to the Bible like we're going into a clean room with our lab coats on, and we're just going to go... In, in this neutral way, and we're going to study the evidence, right, as, as people that have no opinion about anything. We all have assumptions. We all have beliefs. We all have experiences. We all have a certain amount of knowledge, a way of dealing with things. And all of those things affect how we're going to interpret what we read. And that's not unique to the Bible. That's every, that's life. We interpret life through the lens of our own belief system, our own knowledge and experiences. And so we need to remember that we need, we have a, a, a presupposition too, and we need to be aware of that because if we're not careful, we're going to impose some of those things on the biblical text, or we might interpret what we're reading in light of those experiences. And, and, and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not good. Okay, so uh, let me just give you an example, okay? Um, and I'm totally dating myself in doing this. Uh, who knows what that is? My kids are going, what is that? What is that? That's Pinocchio. How many of you have seen Pinocchio? The cartoon. Okay, we have a couple of young people that have seen it back there. Um, and, and you know, uh, if you know the story, he gets swallowed by a whale at one point and, and you know, look at the cartoon, right? Man, he, he, he could build a two-story house inside that whale, couldn't he? You know, and, and, and I think sometimes that we, uh, 20th, 21st century Americans, when we hear that Jonah got swallowed by the fish, maybe that's the image that comes to mind. 
Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But that, that affects, if you teach the story of Jonah to kids that have seen the Pinocchio movie, right? That's probably the, now, now contrast that with this. Have you heard of the Goliath grouper fish? Uh, this dude can, um, in fact, I didn't, I was almost going to play it and I thought, you know what? It's, it's rated PG and I don't want to make anybody sick. So, um, if, if you like it, just Google giant grouper or Goliath grouper, excuse me. Um, there are videos of these huge, huge fish eating whole sharks, uh, almost eating a diver. It, it gets his fin. Uh, anyway, so I didn't, some of you, I know that freaks you out. You don't like Shark Week on Discovery Channel, so I didn't want to do that. But, but look at, look at the size of this thing in relation to the diver. So, if, if you do some of the history about, um, fish and, and swallowing people and whatnot, it, it could have been a whale, obviously, that swallowed Jonah. More likely, it was one of these. Um, anyway, that, that's debatable. But the point is, what, what comes to mind? What, uh, look, look at the difference. So you think about, uh, look at all the room here, right? Look, room, you build three-story house in there, everything's great. Versus going down the belly of this dude. Okay? Um, I don't think Jonah had a lot of room in the three days that he was in the belly of the fish, if we're thinking about it based on some external information that we now know about fish and whales that can potentially swallow human beings. So that's an area where maybe our cartoon experience might affect the picture that comes to mind. How about this? What's he doing? He's ripping off the shingles of his house, right? Probably uh, because he lives in Texas and had hail damage last year. Okay. So when, when the friends take the paralytic to the house where Jesus is healing, is that what they were doing? How do you know? They didn't have a Home Depot. Yeah, yeah, they didn't have one of those big shovels, did they? Yeah, they didn't do shingles back then, did they? And, and the text doesn't tell us whether it took five minutes or out, but you get the idea that they were able to do it fairly quickly. So in the ancient Near East, that's probably what the roof looked like. It was sticks and mud and dirt and tar and probably something more to what you guys in P&G did, right? Something similar maybe, but... Um, and uh, so removing the, the roof uh, probably looked something more like that than what the guy's doing there with the shovel. Okay, so again, are, are these huge deals? Do these vastly change interpretation? Not, not really, but the picture that comes into your mind is in part programmed by your, in my experience as 21st century Americans. So that, that's, that's, all, that's the point, okay? So now, how about this one? Oh, I got... I, uh, my, my kids know, they, they love the Magi. <laughs> They're like, Daddy, please don't teach on the Magi again this Christmas. Um, this is the picture that comes to mind when we, pick, when we picture the Magi, right? You know, three, three little guys uh, sneaking around the, the city streets of Jerusalem at night, riding on camels, trying to find Jesus. Uh, when actually the Magi were likely a, a cast of Persian Parthenian kingmakers. Uh, we don't know how many of them there were. But these were such a prominent class of noblemen in ancient Persia that they probably arrived with these folks, a full cavalry for protection, because they're going into enemy-occupied territory. If you read the history, 
you know that the, the area where Jerusalem resides went back and forth between Rome and the Parthian Empire. So if you've got this group of elite uh, cast members from an enemy, an enemy territory who are coming into Jerusalem and they're bringing their army with them, when the Bible says, when Herod heard this, he was deeply troubled and all Jerusalem with him, well, that, that helps us understand why. Because these folks are showing up saying, where's the real king of the Jews? Rejecting Herod, right? So again, the picture that comes to mind, we, we, we don't want you know, Christmas nativity scenes on our Christmas cards dictating the picture that comes into mind when we read the biblical account. Okay, enough of that. So how do we... Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, 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 yeah. If you come by my house this Christmas, you'll see like the army going back into the backyard. That's the Calvary for the wise men. But uh, anyway. Okay, so where do we get information? Where, where do we get the information we need to know who's writing and, and where was he from and why is he writing? Who's he writing to? We live in such a great day and age because you can get most of that information in one source and that's a good study Bible. Almost all the questions we had up there that we want to try to answer any decent study Bible whose goal is to help you to understand the text is going to give you that information. Here's three of my favorite. Uh, the NIV, which is produced by Zondervan. The ESV, which is produced by Crossway. And MacArthur, which is really his own notes combined with notes from professors at uh, the Master's Seminary and, and College. So those are that's a great source. Uh, another place to go, Bible handbooks. How many of you heard of Halley's Bible handbook? I was a brand new Christian. This is one of the first books I ever bought to try to understand the Bible. I devoured this thing. In fact, I don't think this is even the original book. Um, but I, I remember being so excited to buy this because it was like huh, something that's going to help me to understand Scripture. Unger's is a, another uh, classic uh, by Dr. Unger, who was a uh, famous Bible professor. Um, some other uh, sources, Bible handbooks, Bible dictionaries, uh, a Bible encyclopedia. Uh, I brought the uh, the Zondervan version. This is ISBE. You guys know ISBE? I-S-B-E. ISBE, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. I-S-B-E is the acronym that we use for that. That's a standard encyclopedia work. And then uh, commentaries. We, we mentioned commentaries. Uh, why, why were we all tempted to go to commentaries or do commentaries this week? Yeah, you got questions you can't answer, right? And, and see, you know, we're, we're, we're like 20 minutes into the first episode of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? And we're going, hey, how does this end and where is this going? And, right? So commentaries can help us because these are, are written by people that have studied, in some cases, one book their whole lifetime. And uh, so we can benefit from that. Uh, you know, there, there's, uh, okay, when, when do we look at the commentary? And when, we can talk about when the appropriate time is. But when we're doing background study, often the background information is going to help us on the front end of our journey of interpretation. And I've listed a few here. Um, do you guys know we have a whole set of MacArthur commentaries in the library that you can check out? They're there. And I'm... Uh, going to make sure that some of these other ones are there in the near future too. Um, especially like the Expositor's Bible Commentary because it's, it's, it's a whole Bible set that's, that's good. It doesn't get too technical, so you don't get lost in the details. Uh, but some other ones, the New American Commentary, the NIV Application Commentary. Uh, some of you have, I know, have Bible software like Logos or Accordance. 
and uh, both of those packages are going to have options for getting commentary, so those might be some good ones. Uh, the MacArthur set's also good, uh, but he only has the New Testament. So uh, anyway, so th- those are there to help you get uh, background studies. We'll, we'll also talk about the role that commentaries play on the back end of our interpretive process, which is to check our conclusions to make sure we didn't end up in heresy land. Okay, so we'll talk about that later on. But at this point, we're introducing them to get the background information that might aid us along the way. Now, with that in mind, uh, what I want to do for the rest of our time is work through an actual example. And uh, some of you are in love with real books. You, I mean, you, you, know, you get it, <sighs> you know, and you just, right? And, and um, so that's great. I have some examples here. Uh, and we used to say, if you were doing this, I know Dave and Cece and teaching precept classes over the years, um, you know, there's, there's books you buy to kind of help you. And, and uh, of course, nowadays we have so many great online sources so I want to introduce you to a, a website called Bible Hub. There are apps if you have um, a phone or an iPad that you can use to do that. Thank you, sir. And um, I'm just going to use the, the web interface right now uh, to show you this. And uh, so if you have a phone or an iPad, feel free to get it out right now and, um, and go here and you can follow along. Uh, one of the things we'll do in the future is uh, if you have access to a laptop or an iPad, I'm going to have you bring that with you because some of the exercises that we'll do in future classes, we'll do them together. And if you have a device, then you can follow along a little more easier. Uh, There's others. There's Blue Letter Bible. There's all sorts of places out there. Um, I like Bible Hub because of the the options in terms of the tools. Just a footnote on this. I'll try to point it out. Not every source that you're going to find on Bible Hub is a reliable source. Um, I was browsing through the commentaries that they had, and one of the first commentaries I brought up, Genesis 1.1, had this caveat saying basically everything you read in Genesis 1.1 is not scientifically accurate. Well, I don't think that that's that's true. Um, So there were some very liberal commentaries uh, noted here. So I'm going to try to help you to know which are the the reliable sources, but uh, this is what we're going to look at here, okay? So if you go to the main page... There we go. And we're just going to kind of scroll down here. You'll see uh, on the main page here that they have this list of Bible study tools. And pretty much everything I just talked about, you can find here. Look, you can find commentaries. You can find encyclopedias, dictionaries. Um, uh, Dave mentioned uh, he knew where Nineveh was because he looked at a map. Well, there's an Atlas app here, too, so you can click on the Atlas and uh, so this is very helpful to get some of that external information. So, so here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to study Jonah. Okay, what do we know about Jonah? Now, we could read the book. We should read the book over and over and over and over again and try to get understanding. We, we, can, we can read a little bit of that. We can learn a little bit about his background. If you want to turn in your Bible with me over to Jonah. So let's do that. <clears throat> The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish 
from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down and to go with them to Tarshish from and, and to go into it uh, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, already you're thinking some of the things that Lee taught you last week, the repetition of what? From the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord, right? And so we're, we're noting some things like that in terms of what the writer is wanting us to understand about that little introduction. But we, we immediately have a lot of questions, right? Who's Jonah? Who's Amittai? Where's Nineveh? Where's Tarshish? Where's Jot? So we have some geography here, and we have some uh, some person personal information here. I know what you're thinking. You think, Kate, you just go to the back. You know, God inspired these really nice maps for us. Uh, right, right. Well, remember, the maps are not inspired. They weren't a part of the original uh, canon. Those were added by editors for our convenience so if you have some maps in the back that's a good place to go but what is that that's an extra biblical reference isn't it that's going to help you to know where is Nineveh where's Tarshish and where's Joppa Um, now now let me just show you um, let's start by going to the um, let's see here that's not there it goes this little topical bible is one place to get there or we could go uh uh, sorry, this the, the we're at the the limit of the uh, wireless mouse range here. So let's there we go. We go to this dictionary. Oh come on, there we go. So we're going to come here and we're going to type in. <laughs> we're going to type in. There we go. Type in Jonah. And uh, it's going to give us um, a couple of hits here, right? There's Jonah at the top there. There's Amittai. Um, Gourd, if you want to read about gourds. The gourds make a special appearance in the last chapter. And uh, I may need you to help me, Drew. This is... uh, Let me... Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes, thank you. Yeah, there are apps for both the phone. Oh, thank you. That, that works a lot better. So if we go there, okay, we've got Hitchcock's Bible names. That tells you what names mean. Smith's Bible Dictionary. ATS Bible Dictionary. Easton's Bible Dictionary. And uh, remember I told you about ISBE, right? The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. So we can come down here. That's probably where I would go if it were me because that's a a reliable source. And we can read an article here about Jonah. Now, some of this information uh, they're getting from the Bible itself, right? Which is helpful. We could find that. But some of it uh, is not. Like you're not going to find... Uh, the date range they're given for the reign of Jeroboam uh, without tracking a lot of different kings and doing some arithmetic throughout uh, the historic books of the Old Testament. So um, that's convenient to know something of when the reign of Jeroboam occurred, uh, and that helps us to know what was going on uh, when Jonah was writing his, uh, his book here. Okay, so look, there's a whole bunch of information we can learn here. Um, 
So they give some possible dates based on history. Um, they talk about uh, this um, Gath Hefer, uh, which is probably the village that he was from, and that again helps with, with the geography and the territory of Zebulun. And Joshua apparently alludes to that name. Um, so we get something of the background of his name here. Uh, he received a command to preach Nineveh, but he fled the opposite direction. Right, so we uh, we get that. Um, that kind of is an overview of the the book itself. Um, there's some information about the historicity here, uh, and then there's some references in the New Testament. Okay, so the point is you, you get you get a little bit of information about the date and the time where he was from. That can be very helpful there. Uh, we can do the same thing if we wanted to go to Nineveh. So why don't we do that? And again, my, my point is not to try to go through all of this at once, but just to show you how you can use a tool like this to get more information. So if we just back up, we'll just page back to where we were, and we're going to type in Nineveh. And we go to Nineveh here. <coughs> and again, we can go down to... Um, Oops, what did I do? Okay, so let's do this, the Ninevites. Okay, so there's our, our Isby article again. Okay, now this isn't giving us what we wanted. <clears throat> and that's going to happen, so we just back out. We can try another one. Probably because I, maybe I spelled it wrong. Okay, here we go. This looks a little more promising. Smith's Bible Dictionary has a, an article there. Let's see if Isby has one here. There's Easton. Easton's is good also. Okay, now this, look at this. They've got a huge article. Look at this. That's that's just the outline of the article. Isby has some really long ones. So, uh, again, we won't read the whole thing, but the first mention of Nineveh is back in Genesis 10. Oh, that's helpful, right? We might want to go read about that. And uh, one of the fun things that, that a Bible dictionary can do is it can help you to trace a theme or the history or the background of a subject you're reading, in this case in the Minor Prophets, all the way back to the book of Genesis. So similar, you know, if you type in Nineveh into a concordance where you're looking for every instance of the word uh, in the Bible, that can help you to do that too. Um, but anyway, so this gives you some background here. We can come to find that Nineveh was um, one of the early ancient cities. And, um, and man, all sorts of information here. So you, you could probably read for 30 minutes getting all sorts of information on Nineveh and its background. But one of the things you're going to read, um, this is interesting, Sennacherib, who you'll remember uh, during the time of uh, Isaiah and um, uh, some, of the, some of the kings of Israel, um, the encounter with Sennacherib. But um, anyway, so there's a description from some 
ancient writings about his description of Nineveh. That's interesting. Read what a, a, a contemporary king thought about Nineveh, right? But one of the things you're going to read in here is about the atrocities of the nation of Nineveh and the Ninevites during the time when uh, Jonah was writing. And that gives you some background as to why he is not at all happy that God wants him to go preach a message of potential repentance and hope for the Ninevites. Okay. So again, you get the idea um, that that dictionary is very helpful. Um, let's go back uh, to something that we saw earlier here. How about an atlas? So if we type in Nineveh. Did I spell that right? Is that right? B-E-H. I failed spelling. Hey, there we go. Okay. Look at that. Can you get your bearing based on the, the rivers there? The Tigris River. Okay, so that, that puts us somewhere in the uh, Iran-Iraq area of today, right? Oh, will it? Oh, hey, look at that. Oh, yeah, look at that. So now you can kind of move this thing around, right? Or no, maybe not. It's not live. Yeah. But, okay, so we, we see it's a it's a city on the Tigris River. And the Euphrates River on this side. Here's Babylon down here. Okay, so we can we can get some idea of where it is. So let's do this now. So where's where's Tarshish? Let's find out. Oh. Wow, where's that at? <laughs> Yeah, we'd have to come down here. Let's look. Let's look at our. Where's our blow up? It's hard hard to see from there. But yeah, that's. Um, yeah, this is this is modern day Spain, isn't it? Let's back up here. Let's see if we can find a little bit bigger of a map here. Well, there's Joppa. Okay, he went. He he went to Joppa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he he would come to Joppa, and and so this is the Mediterranean. So Nineveh is over here somewhere, right? And so he goes to Joppa, and and uh, on the Med here, and where is he going? Literally the opposite direction, right? He's going west. Nineveh is east. So that gives us a little bit of idea about <laughs> what he thought about what God asked him to do. So again, again, you probably go to the back of your Bible and look on the maps there. But the point is that there's a lot of information right here at your fingertips for getting background information. Now, another way you can do that, if, if you love books, you can get a Bible encyclopedia. You can look up the article on Nineveh or Joppa, and usually they have maps 
in the book itself. Um, this is interesting. This is a, a manners and customs book, which gives you a little bit of background on culture. And uh, so it's got, I love this, um, animals and insects in Palestine. <laughs> Did they have cicadas? I don't know. Um, archaeology, food and eating habits, birth and infancy, worship rituals, warfare and weapons. Hey, that sounds good, guys, doesn't it? Tools and implements. So all sorts of things here. The Bible handbook is going to kind of be a catch-all. This is going to have all sorts of information about biblical books, maps, charts. Um, uh, and, and what I like about Halley is he's got, a whole, he's got a whole article in every book of the Bible. Almost like a, a study Bible uh, introduction. Here's one of those uh, commentaries I recommended, the New American Commentary. This is the one on Jonah. And uh, again, we, 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 we use the commentary to help us with interpretive issues at the end of our process, but we also use a commentary uh, in terms of background and, inf- and information to help us uh, to come to the text, you know, thinking rightly about the history and the culture. Uh, that's not always explicit in the text itself. And then this is um, this is another uh, book. It's called a, a Biblical Introduction. And uh, these come in New Testament and Old Testament. So uh, an introduction to the New Testament, an introduction to the Old Testament. And as the name implies, this is going to help you to get your brain around uh, different books in the Bible in terms of the background and structure and whatnot. And uh, again, these are written by people that have in many cases, studied that one book for decades. And so they bring an expertise on the material that most of us will never achieve. So uh, in any case, uh, so this is a wonderful little website that you can use. When we talk about word studies in a couple of weeks, we'll use this this uh, website as well. Uh, this is a very helpful site for word studies. Uh, but again, just kind of going back to where we started here. You've got a number of Bible study tools that you can use. So um, part of what I want you to do this week is to um, to utilize. uh, You don't have to use Bible Hub. If you want to use paper books, that's great. Uh, You'll have to invest in those if you don't already have them. Uh, You can check some of these out from the Grace Bible Church library. Uh, If you don't have the books or you don't have the inclination to do that, you can use Bible Hub or other Bible software but again, you've got the atlas, you've got encyclopedias, dictionaries, topical Bibles, timelines, all sorts of fun stuff here. Okay. Questions on background, history, culture? Yeah, yeah. So the question is, you know, how do we be careful about using resources that would be from inaccurate theological traditions like Catholic or, or a very liberal commentary series? Um, first of all, I mean, in, in trying to navigate through this, I've tried to highlight like Isby's really solid, Easton's really solid. You know, it's hard. How do you have a liberal atlas? I guess you maybe. Uh, maybe. Um, so most of those are, are, are solid if you stick to that. The lists I gave you there in terms of commentaries and resources, those are all solid. Uh, and as always, you know, ask, ask, you know, ask your elders, ask a pastor um, that might be familiar with them, and we can try to help you with that. 
Is this making sense? We got we got we get we're, we're surveying the river, right? What are the differences between their culture and ours, their history, our history, so that we can overcome some of those interpretive uh, differences, some of those things we're going to come across that we don't quite understand because we live in a different culture, different history. Okay, uh, so let me put your homework up here. Drew, can we flip it back to the PowerPoint, please? Actually, I guess I'm going to have to do that because <laughs> I, I took the yoke away from you, didn't I? Okay. Uh... Okay, so for those of you that are following along in the book and the, and the homework, uh, your reading this week is uh, chapters 6 and 7. And uh, that's going to talk about history and culture like we talked about tonight. And it's also going to talk about you and I, what we bring to the text in terms of our own presuppositions. And then the assignment is to do assignment uh, 6.5, or 6, 6 should be 6-5 actually, which is on page 136 in the third edition. Let me just make sure that that's accurate. Is that correct? So here's what we're going to do. Uh, your mission, should you cho- choose to accept it this week, is you're going to study the historical cultural background to the book of Nehemiah. And uh, uh, we didn't do, really do anything thorough here with Jonah, but trying to answer those same questions about um, how much time passes between Nehemiah 1.1 and the month of Nisan in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, where is Susa? Get out your atlas. Which empire did Susa serve as one of the three royal cities? Well, you've got to get into a dictionary to get into the history there. What other biblical characters live there? Did this character live before Nehemiah or after? So maybe look at your timeline. Which empire did King Artaxerxes rule over and when? And uh, what was the cupbearer's status in the royal court? All those would be very interesting questions for you to discover and will help you to better understand uh, the narrative of Nehemiah. Okay? Good? Okay, let me pray. Uh, Father, we're so grateful to be recipients of your word and uh, the gift that it is to us, and and we thank you that we also benefit from just rich resources that are readily available that help us to rightly divide your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, this great stewardship, and I pray as we continue to learn a process of uh, biblical study and... um, that you'll, you'll guide us uh, to, to do what Scripture says, uh, to, be, to, to, uh, to accurately handle your word and, and to rightly divide it because we want to know you. Uh, we want to understand your will clearly and accurately and, and we want to be those that are not just hearers but doers of your word. Uh, so thank you for um, our time tonight. Will you give us all grace as we dig into the text this week and, and sources and uh, we pray for your mercy on us as we desire to know you more. In Christ's name, amen.